Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. This is a CNN Tonight special, Royal Revelations. I'm Allison Camerata. In the hour ahead, we're going to examine the media phenomenon that is the Netflix documentary called Harry and Meghan. Why is it the most watched documentary debut ever for Netflix? Why have people around the world watched more than 81 million hours worth of this? Is it because of all of the blockbuster accusations in it? Or do we all just like to see good-looking people struggling behind the scenes? Maybe we relish royal drama. Maybe everyone is hungry to hear what Harry actually says to his brother behind closed doors. How's it going over in Britain? We'll find out. What does Buckingham Palace think about it? We'll find out. Maybe the phenomenon is that we're all suckers for a fairy tale or vipers for a fractured fairy tale. Really, I have so many questions. And whatever it is, something is going on with the popularity of this. Maybe it tells us more about ourselves than about Harry and Meghan. So I'm joined by guests here and in London, all of whom have a lot of opinions about this. They'll also share new reporting on what we've seen so far and the final episodes that dropped at 3 a.m. But let's begin with Harry and Meghan in their own words. CNN royal correspondent Max Foster has that. Good morning. It's 6 a.m. on the 14th of March, and we are on the freedom flight. (laughs) We are leaving Canada and we are headed to Los Angeles. Harry and Meghan making blockbuster allegations against their own family and what goes on behind palace walls. Everything that's happened to us was always gonna happen to us because if you speak truth to power, that's how they respond. In the final episodes of the couple's Netflix docuseries, Harry says he was being blocked from meeting the Queen to discuss his future. Once we were back in the UK, I rang her and I said, I'm now told that you're busy. She goes, yes, I'm, I'm, I didn't know that I was busy. I've been told that I'm busy. I've actually been told that I'm busy all week. I was like, wow. By this point, the couple had decided to step back from royal duties, issuing a statement to that effect. That triggered a showdown at Sandringham House with William, Charles and the Queen. It was terrifying to have my brother um, scream and shout at me and my father say things that just simply weren't true and, and my grandmother you know, quietly sit there and, and sort of take it all in. The couple sharing their perspective on the royal rift, which, in their words, pushed them out of the fold. It started during their tour of Australia back in 2018. So successful, it created jealousy in the palace, they say. The issue is when someone who's marrying in, who should be a supporting, a supporting act, is then stealing the limelight or is doing the job better than the person who was born to do this. That upsets people, it shifts the balance. Within four hours, they're happy to lie, to protect my brother, 
And yet, for three years, they were never willing to tell the truth to protect us. The saddest part of it was this wedge created between myself and my brother so that he's now on the institution side. And I get, part of that I get, I understand, right? That's, that's his inheritance. So to some extent, it's already ingrained in him that part of his responsibility is the survivability and the continuation of this institution. Megan says the stress of the media coverage was too much. Last year, saying she didn't want to live anymore. It's like, all of this will stop if I'm not here. And that was the scariest thing about it, is it was such clear thinking. I remember her telling me that, that she had wanted to take her own life. And, um... And that really broke my heart because I knew, well, I knew that it was bad, but to just constantly be um, picked at by these vultures, uh, just picking away at her spirit, that she would actually think of not wanting to be here. But she also suffered physically because of the stress of the worldwide coverage and in British newspapers, including the Daily Mail, which published a letter she wrote to her father. I believe my wife suffered a miscarriage because of what the Mail did. I watched the whole thing. Now, do we absolutely know that the miscarriage was caused by that? Of course we don't. But bearing in mind the stress, that caused the lack of sleep and the timing of the preg- the timing of the pregnancy, how many weeks in she was. I can say from what I saw, that miscarriage was created by what they were trying to do to her. Megan says she took on her royal role with the best of intentions, but she was warned from the very beginning by her private secretary that things wouldn't be smooth. There was this moment where our private secretary should work for the Queen for almost. 20 years. And what she said to me was, it's like this fish is like swimming perfectly powerful. It's on the right current. And then one day this little organism comes in and the entire thing goes, what is that? What is it doing here? It doesn't look like us. It doesn't move like us. We don't like it. Get it off of us. The family's response? Well, on Thursday, they showed a united front at a planned engagement. And the palace said they had no plans to comment on the series. Max Foster, CNN London. Okay, our thanks to Max for that. Here to dissect all of this, we have Zane Asher, CNN international anchor of One World, also CNN anchor and correspondent and former royal reporter Richard Quest, and Aaron Vanderhoof, co-host of Dynasty Vanity Fair's Royals podcast. Richard, I'm going to start with you because you were growling during some of that package that we just watched. What is your beef with this? Okay. Let us, <laughs> yes. let us divide this into two aspects. All right. On the one hand, we have the appalling way in which Meghan has been treated. She was in an impossible situation and absolutely my uh, sympathy with her is a thousand percent. She could never... Do right. Then why don't you just stop there? That's because isn't that all you need to know. No, oh, of course not. Ow, how simple it would be for you if we did. But that is not what this is about. What's it because about? you've then got what William and Harry, uh, well, what Harry talks about is the institution. He then goes on to start laying it on. 
with a trowel and a spade in big, thick measure. And before long, you've conflated the two, so you can't really see exactly what we're talking about. And then you throw in the media, which are truly appalling. The paparazzi in Britain, I mean, that's one of the things that my eyes were opened to, is the atrocious treatment they got from the paparazzi in Britain. They all do. That's not good enough, that's, Richard. That's, that's not that's good enough. Not just because they all do. Just because it sucks for yeah. everybody. That's and not good we, enough. And the UK has a commission after the uh, phone hacking scandal, the Levinson Committee, and that, nothing has been done about that. And I agree with you on that. I agree with you. But we are talking here about this docu-series, which lays out in excruciating detail all the details of what happened. Not a fan. I'm taking it. <laughs> um, Zane, go ahead. So here's the thing. I was heartbroken watching this documentary. And the reason is because in November 2017, when I found out, I mean, I remember I was scrolling through my phone and I found out that Meghan Markle was engaged to Prince Harry. I was on my way to work. I went back into my apartment, closed my bedroom door, and I just danced. I danced and I danced. And why did you have that and reaction? And I danced. Because for me, as a black woman growing up in the UK, I'd only, I'd always, I'd always felt as though I'd only half belonged, right? I never felt as though, you know, being somebody of African descent that I was ever going to be truly part of the fabric of what makes up English society. And here we are, seeing a black woman, somebody that looks like me, marrying into the most powerful institution this world has ever known. And for the first time in my life, I thought, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe, maybe I belonged more than I thought I did. Mm. Maybe, I, maybe I do belong after all. And I walked from my apartment, it was a 15-minute walk to CNN, and I walked that entire 15 minutes with my head held high because a black woman was marrying into that family. And I remember there was a photograph. I'm sure, you know, everyone saw it. After the wedding, it was Doria, Meghan Markle's mother, with her in-laws, a black woman with dreadlocks, standing next to Queen Elizabeth, not as her subject, but as her in-law. That photograph was monumental. For every black person in Britain, that photograph was monumental. That's it powerful. Meant- I mean, everything that you're saying is powerful. And, and obviously, we will have a lot of time to debate all of this. But I do want to get you in, Erin, because from the American perspective, why is this so globally fascinating? What is the phenomenon here? Uh, I think Megan has a very relatable life story. And I mean, I think, I think that one of the things that gets lost in talking about her is sort of how silly, uh, you know, in a story, not so long ago, I described her sense of humor as like adorkable, which I think is, you know, this is the thing that I'm seeing grading you the wrong way. And I think that a lot of, for a lot of Americans, Megan also kind of comes off a little bit too much, but there's also something so purely, you know, joyful and in their best moments. And I think that there's a sense in which you, when you see something like that, everybody wants to say, no, this cannot be real. This has to be an act. This has to be fake. Like what's going on here? And I think that for Americans watching it, as a, you know, celebrity culture, like we have decided here, we do not want to have a monarchy here. This is not something that we are interested in as like an experiment in governing. We're seeing it through the eyes of, 
you know, the, the fairy tale. The, and the, I think, and the special relationship. You yeah. know, that I think that there's a sense that we like, <laughs> we we like that the UK has maintained some of its ways that are different. Of than course, us. Like, we like the way that we're different. Richard, hold that thought. Um, all of you, hold that thought. We have so much more to talk about. Up next, the view from London. The silence from Buckingham Palace is deafening, but can the royal family continue to ignore this and the accusations? We have a lot more to talk about. The latest episodes of the Harry and Meghan Netflix documentary reveal details of their struggles with the royal family. But they say their story is really a love story. Listen to Megan reading aloud her wedding speech. But mostly I wanted to share a story, a story that I wrote about the man that I love and the way that we met. Let's call this a modern fairy tale. Once upon a time, there was a girl from LA. Some people called her an actress. And there was a guy from London. Some people called him a prince. All of those people didn't fully get it because this is the love story of a boy and a girl who are meant to be together. So people are tuning in by the droves to hear Harry and Meghan's side of the story, but we're not hearing from the new king or the Prince of Wales. Joining me now from London, we have CNN royal correspondent Max Foster and British journalist and broadcaster Badisha Mamata. Great to see you both. Max, why isn't Buckingham Palace responding to this? Well, they are responding, actually. So, yes, today they said they wouldn't be making any official comment. But a lot of this is um, optics, isn't it? Uh, what we were told is that um, the king and queen would be joining the prince and princess of Wales at the princess of Wales's carol service at uh, Westminster Abbey that she organises. So we've got here uh, the Waleses arriving at the carol service, but we've also got um, Charles and Camilla arriving afterwards, as you can see. And this is very clear messaging. All the cameras are there. This is a united front. Not only that, this is a long planned engagement and it's continuing regardless. They are attending regardless of everything that happened. They learned today in this docuseries, which would have been deeply upsetting for everyone involved here, particularly for William and Charles. And it speaks to what Harry says is a problem with the institution, that people are expected to go out and perform like this, no matter how they feel, just as Diana did. And that's a problem with the system. But what you've got here is the rest of the family saying, we're going to carry on with this. You haven't changed anything. Um, Badisha, how do you think this is all going over this docuseries in Britain? Well, it's very interesting because Max used exactly the right words, optics. So what you've got is the royal family, capital R, capital F, Keep up and carry on. Meanwhile, the nation is gripped. Many of the papers led with this, not just the tabloids. And I think ordinary readers are feeling intrigue tinged with a touch of fatigue. This is a melange of soap opera, dynasty, tabloid culture, ancient Old Testament, Cain and Abel, brothers versus brothers, fathers, grandmothers versus everybody else versus the fairy tale. And then you can throw in a dash of tragic Greek tragedy and drama and Freudian impulses and something to do with mothers and sons and history repeating itself and capital L love and capital D death. And everyone's just eating it up. 
not least of all Harry and Meghan themselves. I absolutely agree with some of the commentaries saying, gosh, so this is what they're showing us behind the facade. They desperately want us to feel the pain, to know what happens, where are the cracks, where are the fractures, those immaculate smiling faces. Are they really shouting and screaming behind closed doors? Well, I couldn't, I mean, now we understand why everybody's gripped. It's a melange of all of that that you just <laughs> described. Max, if they were to respond verbally, which as you've said, they won't, what would they take biggest umbrage at? What, what, what do you think is making Buckingham Palace most angry? Well, there'll be specifics, things like, you know, did they protect Meghan or not? I think that they would feel they did. Uh, I mean, it was my experience that often Kensington Palace would um, come and express many of the views that Harry and Meghan had felt, that there was racist coverage, sexist coverage, xenophobic coverage in the media. They would do that, um, but they, you know, other correspondents might have had different experiences. I think Harry and Meghan were right in the middle of it. They do know what happened. There's a lot of truth uh, to what they're saying. I think... Um, William would be very upset that conversations, private conversations, have been exposed by Harry, particularly the one at Sandringham, the massive family showdown. William was shouting. I'm sure he was shouting. I don't think we've got any reason to doubt that. Uh, Charles was lying, according to Harry, and the Queen was just sitting there watching it all come in, putting the institution first. Um, I think they'd be horrified that those conversations are out in the open. And I think that is actually what's going to really do damage long term to this relationship, uh, you know, wondering whether or not it can ever be fixed, because mm. will William ever be able to trust Harry to keep confidence on a personal conversation because he hasn't done so in these very intimate moments. Um, Benicia, there's another clip that I want to play. Basically that Megan was not given a, a literal seat at the table for matters of her own life and future. So here's that. Imagine a conversation, a round table discussion about the future of your life when the stakes are this high and you as the mom and the wife and the target in many regards aren't invited to have a seat at the table. It was clear to me that they planned it so that you weren't in the room. I mean, you can see why she would feel why she would feel isolated or marginalized in that instance. Yes, it's very interesting because what the royal family are saying to Meghan is not, you are not part of the family, but you are not part of the business. What that meeting was, was a board meeting. It was like Wayne Enterprises or a, a large cement or concrete company coming together and saying, how do we do image management? They weren't thinking then in terms of Oh, she is our in-law. She's our new sister. She's oh, our she's new daughter. Right. Yeah. She's, yeah. Uh, she's just a problem to be dealt with. And I can absolutely understand that sense of chagrin and exclusion. And in fact, that's what makes these last three episodes of this documentary series so disturbing and so opaque at the same time. The terrible festering sense of being betrayed. That is what Harry and Meghan desperately want us to understand, which we never really will be able to understand. This is why they're so hurt, in particular Harry, 
Not Megan so much. Megan arrived, she had an unpleasant experience and she turned around and left really quite quickly. Mm. But the wound is in fact with Prince Harry. He really hurts because he feels his father and his brother intimately betrayed him because they're the ones who are supposed to have his back and know him best. You're not kidding. That is Shakespearean. Uh, Badisha, Max, thank you both very much. Great to get your perspective from London. Um, Richard Quest, it won't surprise you, is uh, scribbling frantically. So <laughs> we will get back to that. Megan and Harry <clears throat> slamming the British tabloids for the coverage of them. What's the truth? Did the press cover Megan differently than they did Kate? We're going to take a look and show you examples next. One of the biggest bombshells from Harry and Meghan is Harry blaming the British tabloid The Mail on Sunday for Meghan's miscarriage. The couple also blamed the UK tabloids for what they say was far different coverage of Meghan compared to Kate Middleton and the role that race played. Here's more. I realized that I wasn't just being thrown to the wolves, I was being fed to the wolves. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle slamming the British media in the final episodes of their Netflix documentary, reminding viewers of the firestorm of headlines they faced while living in the UK. I believe my wife suffered a miscarriage because of what the Mail did. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex point fingers at the Mail on Sunday for publishing a private letter Meghan wrote to her father. They say it was an invasion of privacy and they take aim at the many headlines containing racist undertones, like this one referencing Meghan's rich and exotic DNA, or this one about the Duchess's upward mobility, referencing her family's, quote, slave roots, or this claiming Harry's girl is almost straight out of Compton. Sadly, racism is as real for me now as it was 33 years ago. Diane Abbott is the first black woman elected to British Parliament. She says she can relate to what the Duchess of Sussex was facing from the British press. There's something about black women, I think, that some people in this country find particularly triggering. I don't know why, but it's a, it's a combination of misogyny and racism, and they're triggered. And Meghan came in for that in spades. The backlash spilled over into things as mundane as avocados with headlines proclaiming the Duchess's favorite snack is linked to human rights abuses. Meanwhile, praising her sister-in-law, the Princess of Wales, for eating the same fruit. And to nail polish, with headlines criticizing her color choice as vulgar. It was almost as if they felt, as a woman of color, she didn't really belong in the British royal family. The royal couple says it was largely the treatment they received from the British press and the palace's refusal to do anything to help them that ultimately drove them out of the country. We have reached out to the Mail on Sunday, its publisher, Associated Newspapers Limited, and Buckingham Palace for their response. Richard Quest, Zane Asher, and Aaron Vanderhoof are back with me. But hold your thoughts for one moment because I want to bring we'll in right now British American playwright, novelist, critic, and broadcaster Bonnie Greer. She's also a former deputy chair of the board of the British Museum. Bonnie, great to have you here. It's it's undeniable. I mean, it's undeniable. We show the headlines there. She did get different treatment than Kate Middleton. It's not even open for debate. And furthermore, when I watched this documentary, it was the first time I really understood how much the paparazzi tormented them. I mean, swarmed them day in and day out. That's unsustainable. I mean, what, what else was she supposed to do? 
Well, th- thanks for having me, Allison. I, you know, there are a couple of things here that haven't, maybe they have been touched on. First of all, this is a typical story of an American in Britain, you know, writ large. When you marry into a, a, a prominent British family and you're American, and this goes all the way back in history, it's an explosion anyway. We have the sort of unconscious thought that we all speak the same language. We do not. So that's the first thing that happens. So someone can come into a room to an American who's British and make a joke that to to the British people, they'd start laughing and to an American would be absolutely outrageous. We don't have the same sense of humor. And I think Harry didn't orientate her for one thing. I think he didn't give her an idea of what she was walking into. She was marrying into the royal family, not Joe Bloggs down the road. And this was going to be high profile, high media all the way. Then she comes in as a woman. She has a lot of stuff that she's carrying with her and she's not being prepared for it. Some of us who are a a black American uh, living in, in Britain tried to reach her, but we couldn't get to her. You know, there was just a wall around her, not only of the royal family, but of people who just wanted to be next to her. So we couldn't get to her but to Bonnie, say, if you, Yo, but, sister, yeah, what would you have said to her? Gonna be Pardon? What would you have said to her? I would have said, I would have said, first of all, the tabloids are like this. We don't have this kind of relationship in America with the press. They're in your business. They make up stuff about you. They pick sides. That's what they do. And you have if you're going to marry this man, you have to be prepared for that because that's what's going to happen. And that they didn't prepare her for that, that they didn't let her know this was going to go down. I'm putting it on Harry. I'm sorry, because Harry should. Harry's had several people he was involved with who didn't stay with him. They were British and partly it's because the tabloids. And I don't know why he didn't help her, because I don't think he did. Hmm. Um, Bonnie, hold that thought. Because there is a way you orientate people and didn't have. I think that's a really interesting angle. Richard, though, why did she deserve that? She fell in love with somebody. Why does she have to be chased around? I mean, she describes the story oh. of six paparazzi wait, sleeping in their cars outside of her house to chase her around 24-7. Why does she need to deal with that? It's the way it is, and if you don't like the heat, you get out of the kitchen. She got out of the kitchen. Which is what they did, and then, oh yes, she got out of the kitchen, and then opens up a big restaurant on Netflix, cooking up a whole load of other things. (laughs) Let's just have a moment on this. If you talk about this, this is a couple that were so weary of press publicity intrusion, personal intrusion, that they've done this mess. This is a misnomer. I think people really think that... But, but Richard, I think I'm with you. That that paparazzi chasing you is different than doing a Netflix documentary telling your own story. But Bonnie's right. There was nothing she could do about that. That's the way the tabloids are. Harry should have prepared her arguably better. This is a woman... Do you think you own Harry? Like, do you think you're allowed to tell him he doesn't deserve love? Like, that's, I think, where this becomes so difficult and hard to deal with because I think that Harry, you see it in his eyes. He's looking at the camera and he says, like, I knew that if I didn't do something, like, I would lose this woman. And I'd already lost every person I'd ever been with before. So they did. No, no. So they did do something. They left. 
They went to Canada and and everybody thought Canada was going to be the place and they moved down to the United States. And they were reamed by by the press. They were yelled at, according to Harry, by the family. I think the issue here is that they didn't, at a certain point in time, when Harry retired from the military, maybe it should have been time for the palace to sit back Mm -hmm. and say, okay, perhaps he is just going to be on a different road. How do we help him? make a life where he is more happy than with the big press pack. There are only a handful of people in this world who truly understand what it is like to marry into this family. Um, When you marry into the British royal family, you are essentially a private person, but you are kind of public property. And from the moment you walk in, Every expression, Alison, every time you tuck your hair behind your ear, every time you cross your legs, it is picked apart day in, day out by the paparazzi. That is unsustainable. Prince Andrew, I'm sorry, but Prince Andrew was involved in a sex abuse scandal, which, by the way, he settled. And even he, even he got better treatment than Meghan Markle. That, I'm sorry, I find very strange. I'm not sure I agree with you on that. In fact, I will take issue with you on that uh, in terms of the treatment of Andrew post the the, the allegations. They were were there. But to the issue here of Meghan and Harry, first of all, they leave the country. Then they do this interview. Because they want to tell their own story. I don't see it as being chased by paparazzi. I see them as two different things. Okay, and the day that they left, and then they call, and then hang on a second, quickly. Then he calls the king a liar. He says his brother screams. Now look, this might all be true, but they also, Harry also knows this is the one thing that the institution, which you're all seemingly um, uh, happy to beat up on, but the institution is against. Okay, hold that, hold that thought, Uh, Bonnie. Thank you very much. Uh, we will be back with for you to finish that thought and everybody else to tell Richard how wrong he is. I want to say. I'm going to hold right. it in. Bonnie, thank you very much for being here. So from a fairy tale marriage to a docuseries, publicly detailing the bitter split in one of the world's most high-profile families, we're going to trace the arc of the royal fallout. Next. What does it mean, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex? I like the ring of it. And a fascinating choice of titles that once again speaks to this idea of bringing this thousand-year-old tradition, this monarchy that has lasted for so long, now being dragged into the 21st century. So here you have Meghan joining the royal family, this liberal American joining a thousand-year institution and now got a title, the first, by the way, the first (laughs) female to be the Duchess of Sussex. Oh my gosh, that is wonderful perspective. I love the subtext of all of that. Richard, don't you remember how happy we were that day, how loved up we were? It was so <laughs> romantic. I mean, remember, we, we were, you were rhapsodic. Remember, what, what's it hap- what happened? Richard? What happened? <laughs> well, I also remember this idea that was she going to drag the monarchy kicking and screaming forward into the... They were going to make it modern. And they were going to make it modern, but... She wanted to do it on her terms. That's right. And this is, institution wasn't going to play that role. Well, wasn't going the, to play. The, wasn't going to play that. And just and one, as we look at the way, you know, the, 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 the way that that Charles walked her down the aisle, as she says, at her request, we look at the what that happened. But there was no way they were in an impossible situation, and there was no way it was going to move as fast as she wanted it to. Okay, move. that's fair. Go ahead. Well, I think partially part of the issue is I th- I think that when we are saying. 
we want to make the monarchy more modern, it means a lot of things. And I have kind of come to realize that the thing that could make it more modern without compromising the tradition is that they have to be a little bit more like an actual employer employee relationship. I think that there just needs to be a more formal ideas about what it is that they're doing for the public. Because I think the way that it wasn't necessarily that she wanted things to change is that she felt like she was being used. She was, the institution got this good press from the, from her wedding, but they didn't actually want her, you know, they didn't actually want to back up those things that they were that they were saying, yeah, or they were allowing like, to be like, said. What, what's the definition of um, modern, you know, modernizing the monarchy? And they weren't clear about that, and nobody spelled it out first. And mm-hmm. so they did have different impressions. But I just remember that day. I mean, obviously, Americans are suckers for fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And I was. I mean, and I, I was that day. And I was, I, it was very romantic. And I felt that it was really special that she was marrying into the royal family. But of course, I didn't know all of the subtext about what would happen then. Yeah, and it, I, think, I think one of the things that, you know, has really opened my eyes when she spoke in the documentary is really how much of a leaky ship it was within the royal household. You know, it's it's really impossible for all of these stories to come out about Meghan with such frequency without the royal family. And I'm not talking about the principles necessarily, but the people involved in the institution of the monarchy playing some kind of role in that. And that is what is so hurtful. I mean, yes, it's a family but you're seeing really, it really is a family business. Yes. yes. You know, it is a money-making machine. And it's that part of it that is... And they have to protect that. But I also do want to get to one of the things in the uh, docuseries that they talk about, which is what Harry's given up. You know, Harry has left his family and he's moved here and what he's given up and he talks about what he misses. So here's that. I miss the, the weird family gatherings when we're all sort of brought together under one roof for, you know, certain times of the year. Um, that I miss, um, you know, being part of the institution meant that I was in the UK. So I miss the UK. I miss my friends. Um, and I've lost, I've lost a few friends in this process as well. I mean, I came here because I was changed. I changed to the point of I'd outgrown my environment. Therefore, this was the most obvious place to come. You know, it's one of the places where I think my mum was probably going to end up living potentially. Richard, why are you apoplectic? (laughs) Because there's a real politic to all of this, and Harry knows this. And him talking about, I miss my family. I miss having this. I miss having that. Look, if he really misses that in the sense that he wants to improve the situation, you wouldn't have done the interview in the way that he's done it there. You would have built the bridges following the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral when they were back there. But it was too late by then. The contracts had been signed. Let me ask you a question, all of you. Is there a sell-by date? for Meghan and Harry to keep telling us how awful they've been treated. We've heard it from Oprah. We've now heard it from Netflix. We're going to have the book coming out in the new year. Is there a sell-by date? Go ahead, Aaron. Well, here's the thing. So Harry says in the docuseries, he says, you know, you have to finish the last chapter before you can move to the next one. And I think that there's a logic to that. But what he's doing is he's also saying, like, eventually they're going to have to, you know, pony up with the, the charity work that they say they want to do. And I think that, you know, if you've been paying a lot of attention to the times that Harry has been in public the last few years, to some of the things that Megan's done, they've been working with Jose Andres and World Central Kitchen. They've actually done some pretty interesting work where, you know, all that was needed was some funds to make things happen for people. And we're going to have to see them figure out how to turn that into sort of like a, an entertaining just, brand. I'm just going to touch on what Richard said. You know, the reason why Meghan Markle, and I guess Prince Harry, continue to tell their story is because there is clearly a gap between how Meghan Markle sees herself and how the world sees her. 
And there is a very, very wide gap. And obviously, she's attempting to close that gap. I think what I really admire about the fact that she's speaking out is that, I mean, Harry touched on this in the first episode, or actually in the fourth episode, where he said, look, racism, I'm paraphrasing, racism isn't just a white police officer kneeling on a black person's neck on a street in Minneapolis. It's not someone screaming, I can't breathe. Racism comes in so many different iterations. It comes in so many different shapes and sizes. And oftentimes it can be very subtle. It can be extremely covert. And actually the more subtle it is, the more courage it takes to speak out about it. Mm. And so I just think that this is a process of education for a lot of people, especially for the British public. It's a teachable moment because a lot of people say to me, well, saying just because I don't like Meghan Markle, that doesn't mean that I'm a racist. Yes, of course it doesn't mean that you're a racist, but you have to look at the nuances. It's what I call shadow racism behind some of the coverage. And I have to ask myself, what has this woman done? That headline, and you and I were just talking about this a second ago, that headline where, I can't remember which tabloid said it, but it was something like, you know, Meghan Markle's flowers at her wedding, you know, you know, Charlotte, Princess Charlotte had an allergy to flowers and Meghan Markle's flowers at her wedding, you know, could be responsible for, could, have, know, killed could, could have killed Princess yeah. Charlotte. What are you talking about? Right. What are you talking like about? Like they vilified her to that completely, degree. Completely. That she would be a murderer. Yeah. So unfair, so unreasonable. And nobody has told me yeah. what this woman has done to deserve it. Okay, so even we have to go. If, oh, even if you're all right, why do this? Uh, okay, so I'm going to answer that. The expiration date that you were asking about, I would say, is a month after Prince Harry's book. When he's done with the book tour, then they can move on. That's my answer to that. All right. <laughs> well, everybody stay there. I hope you're listening, Royals. Okay, listen to this. The royal fascination spreading far outside of the United Kingdom. Why are Americans so hooked on the royal family? We look at that next. Harry and Meghan trying to make a new life in the U.S., saying they love the freedom for their family. Take a look. Part of what's beautiful here is the freedom to have family moments out in the world. Oh, we're going to see the horses. Yay. And I want our kids to be able to do that and to be able to travel and to fall in love. You know, I just want them to be happy. <laughs> the world that they see is how I would love the world to be. How is, is Richard Quest? Richard, aren't they entitled to that? Aren't yes. they entitled to travel freely without being hounded by the paparazzi? In Why is that so wrong? world, yes, but it's like the Hotel California. You can leave, check out, but you can never leave. How? He, because... He's right in a sense. He's born into the royal family. Through no choice of his own. Correct. I give you that. But the reality is once there, the paparazzi, because you want to read about it and our dear viewers are enjoying hearing about it. And as long as we feed the beast, the beast will go after them. That is the reality. Except of you it. can change the reality. If you're the royal family and they had said lay off Megan. They did. How do you know they did? Because, because she feels that she wasn't ever defended they, by them. She, in her view. But if you listen to what Max Foster said earlier, that time and again, they were told to lay off. They were told to lay off Diana. They were told to lay off. But we have the freedom of speech in the UK. 
We have it here too, Richard. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Oh, yes, but Americans always seem to think they're the only ones who have it. <laughs> we have freedom of speech in the UK. You can't go and tell the press. You can't go and cover, cover it. One other point here. Quickly. Megan going on about, I want them to be able to go no, and have in a that? garden. Oh, and Balmoral isn't big enough. Sandringham, Windsor, all the homes they that they have. They couldn't travel we've... unencumbered. They couldn't. They, all the rest of the family managers to go away, have holidays. Yes, there are indiscretions, such as the pictures mm. of Diana, but the Queen managed at Balmoral for six weeks every year. Okay, hold that thought. I want to bring in Nichelle Turner now, our dear friend in L.A. Uh, Nichelle, always great to see you. Are they? Can they have a more private life in L.A.? Are paparazzi surrounding them constantly in L.A.? Well, I think they do have a more private life. But if you listen to them in the documentary, they they Harry specifically says and Megan as well, we weren't tr- saying that we wanted privacy. We weren't saying that that's what we wanted. We just wanted more freedom. So, you know, I think that they kind of live their lives. I mean, we do see paparazzi photos of them at the coffee shop in Santa Barbara or wherever. But that's, you know part and parcel to being a celebrity in Southern California, you're going to see shots of them. But for the most part, I think they do kind of move around um, uninhibited at this point. Yeah, I think that's different than being chased. I mean, they they had to have drivers who knew how to do evasive driving, just like Diana. That's dangerous. I mean, of course, Harry is traumatized from that experience of what happened to his mother. Richard, let me ask you this to, to end on this note. If they had done this documentary and just gone after the paparazzi in the UK and the media and left the family alone, you'd be okay with all of this? If they'd gone after them and even attacked the institution for the way they handled Meghan, I would have been fine with it. But revealing the private conversations within the family and then throwing up this smokescreen of how awful it was again and again and again, that's it. Uh, okay. Mm. Well, uh, Nichelle, it sounds like they've made the right choice and that they are having a better, a better time in L.A. I don't know how anybody watches the documentary and doesn't come away with the fact that Harry wanted to be away from the family long before Meghan ever entered the picture. <laughs> Look, this, the, rea- the, the, the reality is what you have here with Harry was smoldering embers of resentment. On, justifiable. Justifiable smoldering embers. And then you add Megan, who's an accelerant to those embers, and you end up with what we've got. Well, then, Richard, you should be happy with where they have ended up. Uh, Nichelle, <laughs> great, great to see you. Thanks so much for giving us the L.A. perspective. And thanks, everybody, for watching CNN tonight, our special Royal Revelations. We'll be back with more news in just a moment. Welcome back to CNN Tonight. I'm Allison Camerata. You have no doubt heard that there is a problem at the U.S.'s southern border. Politicians are pointing fingers, and it's hard to know what to believe. So CNN's Ed Lavendera went to Mexico to see firsthand the thousands of migrants waiting to get into the U.S. Officials say 2,500 people are crossing over into El Paso every day. And that number is expected to double next week when time runs out on a Trump-era pandemic policy known as Title 42, which made it easier for officials to send asylum seekers back to Mexico. And it's not just Texas dealing with a mess at the border. In Arizona, take a look at this. The Republican governor has issued an executive order to use shipping containers to fill gaps in the border wall with Mexico, as you can see there. And now the Justice Department is suing that state to try to remove those containers. And one Democratic mayor in Denver, more than 600 miles away from that El Paso border, is calling for a state of emergency tonight to deal with the hundreds of migrants who have arrived in his city in just 
the past few days. And joining us now is that Denver Mayor, Michael Hancock. Mayor, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Why is it a state of emergency in your city? Awesome. First of all, glad to be with you. I issued the uh, declaration of emergency earlier today because we've seen a steady stream. Really, over the last six days, we've seen uh, over uh, over 472 people come to our city as we started to track uh, the migrants after I activated our emergency operations center. Uh, just beginning to really stress our systems and really stress our financial uh, 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 condition in the city of Denver. And so, so Denver can't absorb 472 people? Like, what's the problem? That's just where we had the surge. And that's where we just started counting because we activated the emergency operations center. The reality is that we have over 700 migrants that have, and asylum seekers that have come to our city over the last uh, several months. And the reality is that while we are trying to take care of those who are on house, and by the way, we know this is a challenge in cities all over the country in terms of our neighbors being on house, and uh, we are also trying to house those who are coming to our, our uh, transportation uh, station uh, in the city of Denver. We simply can't do both. It's stressing our system. It's stressing our, our shelters in the city of Denver. And so we've had to open up two of our recreation centers, actually three, take them offline to our taxpaying citizens to uh, help those who are coming to our city as migrants and asylum seekers, as well as to make uh, public calls for assistance with our partners, our nonprofits and our faith leaders. And so it is stressing our system. It is a challenged time. But what we saw was not the continued trickle. We call it, we saw a surge happen where we saw anywhere from, you know, 60 to 110 people show up at one time in one night. Um, and that becomes a problem where we're trying to provide services to them. As you will well know, there were some Republican governors who were shipping migrants to other cities. Do you know why there's been a surge in Denver? I think a couple of things. One, we are learning from the um, uh, migrants and asylum seekers themselves that they organize themselves through social media uh, to come to a destination through outside of uh, their normal entry spot or their, their entry spot in El Paso, Texas. Uh, and they they decided to come to Denver. But they also we told us that there are some folks on the ground who suggested we they come to Denver. And so as they boarded buses to come to Denver, uh, they, they came and, and we started seeing them come in droves, uh, you know, again, 60, 70, 110 at a time. And that just becomes a little too much. Yes, understood. Um, the last mayor, very quickly, do you consider what's happening at yeah. the border a crisis? Do you call it a crisis? It is a crisis. I don't know anyone who can look at that and realize that we don't have a problem. I think uh, as I made a call today to the federal government, uh, really challenged them to say it's time. This situation occurred way before. It's been going on far too long in America where we don't have a sensible immigration policy. And uh, my call to them was, again, mayors and cities are bearing the brunt of Congress inability to act, to continue to play politics and not do what's right. Uh, in terms of sitting down and negotiating a policy around immigration that makes sense. And once again, we have our cities all over this nation uh, bearing the burden of that inactivity. So we need federal government to act to address this crisis at our border and to make sure we have a policy that makes sense for those who are trying to come in the U.S., but also to help those of us who are on the ground trying to make accommodations for those who want to come to this nation seeking uh, freedom and seeking opportunity. Mayor Hancock, thank you very much. Great to get your perspective. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. You too. Also tonight, a federal judge ruling the Biden administration cannot end 
the Trump-era remain in Mexico policy, at least for now. The Supreme Court had given the president, President Biden the green light to end the program that sent certain non-Mexican citizens who entered the U.S. back to Mexico for processing. And that, that, has apparently cha- that is apparently changing. So I want to bring in now CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller, also Democratic Congressman Adriano Espaillat from New York, and former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh. Great to have all of you guys here. Congressman, is this your fault, meaning Congress's fault? I mean, as the mayor was just saying, why can't Congress act? Well, I agree with the mayor. And as an immigrant, I agree that uh, we have not been able to come forward with comprehensive immigration reform. So it's a crisis at the border, but it's a crisis in the hemisphere, a crisis of democracy. Most of the folks that are coming over are from Nicaragua and from Venezuela, fleeing ruthless, thuggish regimes. You see what's happening in Peru right now. And you see the, uh, the crisis, the environmental crisis in some countries that push people to look for some level of help. That's why it's getting worse. And so why can't Congress act? We should act. And, and I'm, not blaming, I'm not blaming one side or the other. We haven't found the political will to do it. I think there's been sensible proposals that have been put at the table. And yet this issue is weaponized politically during the elections. is used as, as, a, as a weapon to score points, to get votes, yeah. to point, pink, point fingers. And it's the wrong approach. We got we to gotta deal with this sooner or later. Congressman's right. Allison, this is a broken system. It's been broken for a while. Um, and neither side wants to fix it because, because of it plays expediency? politically. Wait a second. So you're really saying I mean, yes. they're that cynical that Democrats and Republicans yes. don't want this fixed, yeah, what, I, what they're dealing with in Denver tonight? I say this as a former Republican member. If you can demagogue this issue and scream and yell about this issue, you do well in Republican politics. Yes. It and works. what about Democrats? Democrats don't want to fix it either? I think we put forward real proposals. We put forward a proposal, a simple work permit. Yeah. Allison, for five years with the ability to renew another five years. And why Simple. didn't that pass? Dreamers. Dreamers is the simplest concept sure. at all. Agreed. No what political will from the other side to get it done. I, I think Democrats have been afraid of border security and Republicans have been afraid of addressing the issue of dreamers. Yeah. And so nothing's gotten done. I hear you. I think that makes sense. Uh, John, obviously, New York has had various issues. I mean, every city now is having issues. It's not just the border, but they're really having issues at the border. So this is a multifaceted problem and definitely a crisis. But when you look at, you know, the politics of it up front, um, there was a lot of screaming and yelling about a Republican governor in Texas sending, you know, migrants on buses up to New York City and Chicago. Um, Well, that was a governor in Florida. That's right. From Texas. Uh, But then, you know, we learned um, when the city of New York sent the team down there from the mayor's office that the El Paso mayor was sending seven buses for you know, versus the three buses that the governor was sending. And he's a fellow Democrat. That was a city that was just being overwhelmed. And what they were saying is, where do you want to go? If you tack on top of that, the idea that most of these border crossings are facilitated by two major cartels in Mexico that are charging between $1,500 and $4,000 a head for single travelers or more for families, when Title 42 comes down, they're expecting that to go from 170,000 crossings a month to over 200. Um, that is going to be feeding more money, in not, not the millions, in the billions to the cartels, which isn't good for us because that's being funneled back into the drug markets. Um, 
That's it's a it's a surround sound problem. Okay, so we have one minute left. Let's do a lightning round. What's the solution? The solution, I think, everybody has agreed here is that Congress has to act. I mean, this goes back to you know Newt Gingrich and Ted Kennedy coming up with a bill that they just couldn't get across because even back then parties were too brittle. Uh, but we need to have a mechanism. We can't let the crisis overtake us. Yes. Okay. What's the solution? Congress has to act. We we have to secure the border and we have to fix our broken asylum system. Congressman, take this message back to Congress. What well, is the answer? I'll start with dreamers. That's the low-hanging fruit. And by the way, we're willing to do border security. The Republicans just walked away from the table in the cinema Tillis uh, framework. Uh, they don't want anything. They want to weaponize this two years from now. Let's do dreamers. They work. They're nurses. They're teachers. Yeah. They own their homes. They're small business owners. They're Americans in everything for one thing. They don't have that piece of paper. Let's do that. And by the way, Allison, all of these things are things that most of the American people want. Absolutely. No, I hear what you're saying. Start with what should be easy, but for whatever reason, it's not. Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much for that conversation. Really appreciate that. Okay, next. Elon Musk claims to be all about free speech. So why did he just ban multiple journalists who cover him and the tech industry, including CNN's own Donny O'Sullivan? He's going to join me next to discuss. Just in tonight, Elon Musk banning multiple tech journalists from Twitter with no explanation. The suspensions come just hours after Twitter shut down an account belonging to an emerging competitor, Mastodon. The ban includes The New York Times' Ryan Mack, The Washington Post's Drew Harwell, and our own CNN's Donny O'Sullivan. Here with me to talk about all this, we have John Berman, also Donny O'Sullivan, and CNN's Oliver Dorsey. What did you do that was so bad, Donny? Um, we reported on Elon Musk. We were talking about the world's, well, formerly the world's richest man, uh, world's second richest man uh, who runs Twitter. He uh, has taken particular... Um, uh, he, he, he's, yes, he's been annoyed that there's been this account, which has been active for years now, which tracks uh, the movements of his private jet. Right, but you're not doing that. Why did no, so, you get banned? So we reported how yesterday he shut that account down, and tonight we continue to report on it. He is claiming on social media that um, I and other journalists uh, shared the precise live location of his jet, and therefore that's why he kicked us off because we caused danger to him. Certainly, in my case, I didn't. Uh, we we uh, just uh, posted uh, stories about what was happening, him shutting down those accounts. Um, but look, I think the bigger uh, issue here is, of course, this is supposed to be the guy who's the free speech absolutist, right? Wait, are you saying that, that Elon Musk is saying something that isn't true? I think that seems to be the case. Well, I mean, it goes, it actually goes further than that, John. He's, he was touting, I mean, freedom of speech as this beacon, that Twitter would be a beacon of that until it comes to anybody saying something about something he doesn't like. There's a word for that. Is it it called hypocrisy? It might be called hypocrisy. Yeah. Look, first of all, Elon Musk's understanding of freedom of speech has always been somewhat limited. There's no constitutional freedom of speech for a private company. Never has been, and as far as I know, there never will be. So his criticisms of Twitter from before were off base. It's his company. I mean, he can ban Dhoni if he wants to. Uh, It's just wildly hypocritical. Um, Oliver, what is CNN going to do about this? Well, I think this raises a big question about what the free press, what the future of the free press on Twitter looks like. You know, are news organizations going to stand by as the reporters are just 
you know, hastily banned without explanation. Uh, CNN is saying it's going to reevaluate its relationship with Twitter based on the response it gets. I want to read you the full statement, Allison. It says, um, the impulsive and unjustified suspension of a number of reporters, including CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan, is concerning but not surprising. And it goes on to say Twitter's increasing instability and volatility should have should be of incredible concern for everyone who uses Twitter. And then it goes on to say, we have asked Twitter for an explanation and we will reevaluate our relationship based on that response. And I think it's so important to point out that Twitter really needs or really relies on news. I mean, that's what's what the kind of the lifeblood of and Twitter. Journalists. Current events. I mean, they're all right. on Twitter. And so if you see news organizations start to pull their reporters, pull their brand accounts, pull their content off of Twitter, you know, that's going to be a real blow to the platform and make it less usable, I think, for yeah. the average person. Doing my job here and to play devil, devil's advocate against myself, <laughs> I guess. Um, look, when Trump got suspended, everybody pointed out that that was also, you know, a concerning thing for many people kicking off the then president of the United States, regardless of the circumstances. But, you know, I have a platform. I'm here talking to you on CNN. There are other social media platforms. The First Amendment, despite what Musk and a lot of his supporters say, does not actually apply to Twitter. I think what is more concerning here, though, is independent journalists, freelance journalists all around the world, many of whom are covering maybe abuses and ongoings at Musk's other companies, Tesla, SpaceX. Think about the chilling effect that might have because, as Oliver said, many journalists rely on Twitter to get their work out there, particularly if they are independent freelancers. But furthermore, one of the things that I think where the hypocrisy comes in is that a lot of people felt that Hateful, vitriolic, violent speech shouldn't be allowed on there because of personal safety. Elon Musk doesn't want his personal safety violated. I mean, that's what it comes down to. He doesn't want people to know where he is. It's, it's about personal safety and When danger. it's about him, he doesn't like it so much. Look, I said this before to you. Elon Musk is a very successful businessman. He's a rich guy. He's a rich guy who bought a media company. But because he bought a media company doesn't mean he understands a thing. The, about the media business or about how this all works. And I think he's just proving that again and again and again. And if I may, yeah, I, I think we should say that he is actively smearing people like Doni, saying that they effectively posted assassination coordinates on him for reporting on this Elon Jet account. That's obviously not true, totally false, but that's what you're hearing him say on Twitter tonight. Also, the location of his jet is publicly available information. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that, You're going to get us all banned. That, right now. I mean, don't. you got to be careful. I always drag us down with I you mean, here. I always thought I'd get banned for my bad jokes. That, no, that really adds another wrinkle to it. Um, gentlemen, thank you very much. All right, next, uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi sit down with CNN exclusively, and they say that Joe Biden should run for a second term as Pelosi throws some shade at a certain former president. Maybe she does an impersonation. We'll see. Had I known that standing up for truth would cost me my job, friendships, and even my personal security, I would, without hesitation, do it all over again. I can rest easy at night knowing that I fulfilled my oath to the office. I know many in this institution cannot do the same. I think we get out of this mess that we're in, this, the polarization, the hate, the anger, the fear, the first step out of that is with gratitude because this country has always done great things. But we do great things when we're together, when we 
embrace normalcy, when we embrace decency, when we embrace compassion. That was Republican Adam Kinzinger and Democrat Tim Ryan delivering their final speeches as congressmen on the House floor. With just days to go until the new Congress, we have a CNN exclusive for you. Jamie Gangell sits down with outgoing House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer for their first joint interview. And back with us now, John Berman, Congressman Espayat, and former Congressman Joe Walsh. Okay, so let's listen to this uh, sit down over lunch with um, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Here they are talking about if they would like President Biden to run again. There's a CNN poll that just came out that shows there's little appetite on both sides for a Biden-Trump rematch in 2024. Uh, You're stepping aside. Do you think President Biden should step aside for a younger generation? I think President Biden has done an excellent job as president of the United States. I hope that he does seek re-election. He's a person with a great vision for our country. He's been involved for a long time, so he has great knowledge of the issues and the challenges we face. And he's the most empathetic president. He connects with the American people. The vision, the knowledge, the strategic thinking is all here. The empathy is from the heart. And I think that he's been a great president. Look at what he's accomplished. You a think lot of he people, should run again? Yeah, he's done an excellent, excellent job. And he runs, I'm going to support him all the way. John, as you know, I also don't let anything get in the way of me and my lunch, as you know. Well, I've done, I've done, how many dozens of interviews have you done at a diner before? I've never seen anyone actually eat during the interview. Nancy Pelosi's like, screw this, I'm going to eat. Like, there's food here. I'm starving. There's food. This is happening. Sorry. Um, Okay, back to the point, which is, has something shifted since the midterm? Has the momentum for uh, President Biden to run again shifted? Well, he's, he's got a better story. Now that he had from before the midterm, certainly with the Senate, at least, the Democrats did lose control of the House of Representatives, although not by as much as people thought they would. They gained seats in the Senate. Um, President Biden has continued to pass things that he wanted to pass. So I, I think Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are giving the natural response. You would not expect leaders of Congress and the president's party to say anything but what they said right there. And unless and until there's actually a Democratic alternative, I don't expect you'll hear that from anyone in any kind of leadership position of the party. Yes, Joe? I want whatever sandwich she was eating. (laughs) It looked like a burrito, frankly. (laughs) Um, I think the winds have shifted. Biden's in really good shape. And this is just the beginning because my former political party, now in charge of the House, is going to just make a mess of things for two years And President Biden is just going to sit back and point at that mess that the American people are not going to be happy with. Mm -hmm. Two years are an eternity. We're two years away from an election. A a month could be an eternity. But meaning he might change his mind? No, I think he's done a good job. I, I think, look, we went through a pandemic. He was there for the American families, invested in infrastructure, maybe as much or more than Eisenhower did for the highway system. No, um, gun control. Uh, dealing with the student well, he debt. He has a legislative record. He's done. Sure. He's so. So when we when we we have somebody working for us and they're doing a good job, what do we do? Because we don't like the tie they wear. Do we fire them? No, we rehire them. Yeah, I mean, do you think, John, that in general Americans like consistency and they're going to stick with the devil they know? I mean, I don't mean is he going to win. I mean, at the end of the day, do people just feel more comfortable? Incumbent presidents very rarely lose. They it doesn't happen. 
often. I, I will say this, that, that, that Joe Biden, I think the world, especially the Democratic world, is looking at things differently as long as Donald Trump's in the race. As long, long as Donald Trump may or is likely to be the Republican nominee, Joe Biden as the nominee is a different story. But if there's a generational comparison, then I think they, there may be a recalculation. They make it to the same place, but I think they will rethink things. Okay, let's now hear from Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer on Donald Trump's announcement. Right now, Donald Trump is the only Republican who has announced he could be the nominee. He could be president again. You've been through the first presidency. You've been through January 6th. What would it mean if Donald Trump was reelected president? I don't think it'll happen. No, American no. people have gotten wise to it. Took mm. a little I, while, uh, yeah. but they did. I don't think that we should talk about him while we're eating. <laughs> See? <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny line. A um, but but I think you disagree fundamentally with what Senator Schumer was saying. Yeah, I mean, all respect to Senator Schumer, he's not of the Republican base. He's still the king of the Republican base until someone knocks Donald him Donald Trump is. Yeah. Yeah, so you don't think that the tide has turned with that? The tide is turning. I don't know if it's permanent. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts? Well, if you see the results in the last election and you see what we did in the Senate and even we... Even though we lost the majority in the in the House, a tight margin, uh, unforeseen before perhaps at this level. Uh, I think he I think he's done. I think Trump is done. I mean, again, two years is an eternity. A month is an eternity in politics. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, but do you? I mean, did you learn? (laughs) Does the last experience uh, inform your thoughts at all? Which is a lot of people didn't take him seriously, and then it became. Oh no, I I I get that. I mean, I get that, but. You know, uh, January 6th uh, and a host of things. It's just yeah, but the, the, the accumulation of things. And even though he has a base, it's not broad enough for America to come forward. Oh, and I agree with it. that. I, I'm just, I, I think there's still a decent chance he gets the nomination. I don't think he'll ever be elected again. Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much. Really interesting. More than a month after the murders of those four college students in Idaho, the mother of one of the victims says she feels left in the dark by police. So up next, where the investigation stands tonight. It's been more than a month since the murders of four college students in Idaho, and police have yet to name a suspect. The biggest development was police asking the public for help finding that white Hyundai Elantra or information about it, but we've not heard of any other lead or what happened with leads on that car. Now the mother of one of the victims is speaking out. And let's listen to her. It's sleepless nights. It's feeling sick to your stomach. It's just being left in the dark. You found out about the white car from a press release? Yes. Yes. Did they send you the press release? No. She's one of multiple parents speaking out this week, looking for answers about their children. Back with me is John Berman, now John Miller, and Joey Jackson. Um, it's I don't understand. I don't understand, John, what's happening in Idaho, why this is taking so long. That, that white car, I thought that it was linked somehow to the driveway of that apartment or something, but it seems like it was just kind of spotted in the neighborhood. So the white car is a lead, which is... After doing the big video canvas and asking people, you know, what they've seen, somebody, you know, comes forward with a piece of video um, and a sighting and says that car was in the area of the residence at the time of the murder and they want to know more about it. 
We don't really know if they know any more than just that, uh, because they're not saying. But there's like 20,000 of that car between those years um, in that color, you know, in the area, um, which includes the whole state of Idaho. So, you know, without finding the car, they can do basically a batch dump of all the registered owners, then cross that with NCIC and see, you know, who has a criminal past and so on. There, there are things they can get through, but it's just a lead. Joey, this mother, I think, is recognizing what I often felt when I was a crime reporter, which is victims' families think that the police are their advocates or the police are there for them. But in fact, the police sometimes do a bad job of that. The police are trying to solve the crime, and they're often insensitive to what the families need. Yeah, but but that's problematic, right? It takes a village, and certainly I think police and prosecutors and other law enforcement entities have to be sensitive uh, you know, to people who are really in misery and who are really grieving and doing other things at the time. You want answers, you want information. And so, yes, we have to understand and respect the fact that the police are busy, Allison. They have a lot of work to do. They're trying to do their due diligence. But for families to learn about things on TV like everyone else, I think you have to be a conduit to the families. You have to give them repeated and persistent updates. And you have to give them some sense of comfort that you're doing your job and trying to bring some measure of justice, whatever that looks like, to them. That leads us to the story of the missing American student in France. So Kenny Deland, his parents haven't gotten any information. They don't know what's happened to their son. They find the um, authorities in France not being terribly helpful. So they went on Anderson last night. I think that this is the sound that we have from them. Let's listen. I talked to the FBI today and I asked the FBI agent, um, you know, is there, do you feel like there's any progress? What's the status? And I, I don't get anywhere. And it, it just feels like the, the wind is gone out of the sale as far as what's being done to find my son. Um, you know, the more time that goes by, the more worried we become. Yeah, and this is why parents do turn to the media and often it really helps. Well, it can help in certain aspects, right? And, and John, I think you can probably speak to this more th- than I can, but, but there are different constituencies here. I mean, the FBI is trying to solve the crime. And that is their first, second, third, fourth, and fifth interest in this case. They should have a better bedside manner. It's like we talk about doctors in the hospital. Yes, you know, their job is to save the patient, but wouldn't it be nice if they did a better job talking to the families also? It's a skill. It's not the primary thing they're doing there, though. And But the parents are desperate for information. The FBI could at least, or the police at least, just give them an update. Here's what's ha- here's what we're doing today. I mean, I think that it would what if they can't? What if that would compromise the investigation? What if you're telling them something that shouldn't be made public or, or, or shouldn't be made, you know, known? Well, well one we have up- a completely different problem in in uh, in, in France, though, which is. The secret is the French authorities aren't telling the FBI anything. So the FBI has nothing to tell that family. The French are telling the State Department that we are tracking and following the investigation, full stop. We think he walked away of his own accord. He's 22 years old and a full-on grown-up. And, you know, if he turns up anywhere, we'll get back to you right away. Um, But they're not doing, you know, a nationwide, you know, hunt using all resources for this. And that as we've circled back between these two stories, is very hard for parents. Absolutely. The French are being very French about this, which is, he'll be fine. And the Americans are being very American about it, which is, we want answers now. Will it help that Interpol is now involved? 
So Interpol is a clearinghouse for information. What will really help is that yellow notice that they put out, which then circulates this picture to every border crossing. So if he gets on a plane, if he crosses between one country and the EU and another, that should ring the bell that this missing person is right here right now. And it's about time they did that. I mean, the family's position was, you know, look, do something, right? We believe that our son is acting not in accord with how he normally acts. And they're saying nothing to see here. He probably just wandered off. There's probably nothing amiss. There's nothing nefarious going on. That's a major disconnect between a family who wants answers and the French saying, you know what? Uh, and prosecutors agreeing, he'll be back. Don't worry about it. I, I also want to get in the uh, family, the parents of one of the victims in the UBA shooting, because they're speaking out also, and they want the public's help. So listen to this. We need to change gun laws. Change them. We need more stipulations. Um, the red flags were there, and this young man was still able to purchase a a, a firearm. We're here to advocate against the gun violence and mental health issues. We're here to make sure another family would never, never go through this again. John, of course, they're right. I mean, they the red flags were there, as she mm-hmm. said, and yet he was able to purchase a firearm. And look, Allison, you've spoken to so many of these families from so many different events, and these parents have now joined this, this growing club uh, of people who have been so badly hurt by this and are now just crying out to the world for something. But their cries are like, you know, Cassandra, the old Greek myth, where where they're crying out, warning, 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 but no one's listening. Yeah, I mean, I suppose this is what all parents say. All parents say that the signs were there and that they need to tighten up the red flag laws. And many states are trying to do that. And, you know, the bipartisan uh, gun law was trying to do that. But it always feels like afterwards we find out about the signs. Um, Gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, John and John, you're not going anywhere. Joey, thank you. Uh, because tonight the National Archives has released more than 13,000 additional documents on the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963. What do they say? What will we learn after nearly six decades? Why has it taken so long to make these documents public? We're going to be joined by presidential historian Douglas Brinkley. Tonight, the National Archives releasing 13,000 previously classified documents on the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Yet thousands of pages are still under lock and key 59 years after Kennedy's murder. Why? And what's in those pages? Back with me, John Berman and John Miller. We're also joined by presidential historian Douglas Brinkley, author of Silent Spring Revolution. Doug, I want to start with you. Um, might there might these 13,000 pages that have just been released reveal some new nugget that we didn't know about? Well, people are hoping that might be the case. Another piece to the puzzle of the great murder mystery in American history. But alas, when you we throw numbers 13,000, we usually find out that most of these are just sort of articles or general observations, nothing really that exciting. And what also is very disturbing to the public, but isn't to a scholar, is how much gets redacted. You know, our intelligence services, Defense Department, um, national security apparatus does oftentimes darken parts on a document. And when that's not filled in, it just leads to conspiracy-minded people getting inflamed. But Biden met his mark today. He got these documents released, but that's not going to be enough when there's still CIA files and uh, many, many documents still not um, declassified. And so there's going to still be a drumbeat 
where's the rest? But John, if there's nothing in them, why have they been under lock and key for more than 50 years? It's never going to be enough with this specific event, which was obviously such a jarring uh, wound to the American psyche at the time. But it was the lack of transparency in those very early years that led to this doubt, which I think will never go away. They, no, people will never be satisfied. If there is a complete release and there's nothing in there, then it will cause people to say, see, they're hiding something. They're hiding something. They didn't release the real stuff here. People just aren't going to believe it. But I think the original sin from this happened so, so long ago. And what the CIA probably is keeping now is just this stuff that the CIA always likes Maybe, to or maybe there's something about Lee Harvey Oswald in there, John. Well, I mean, if you look at what they released, and the CIA says we've now released almost everything we have, and the redactions in these new releases are much smaller than the redactions in the old ones. But John is right. Um, this was, you know, a generation that I grew up in, and nobody, given the choice, nobody really wants to believe that some schlump, you know, was solely responsible for killing uh, the person that many regard as the most inspirational, um, charismatic, you know, president in American politics uh, since Lincoln. And there's got to be a better story. So if they release the next document dump and there's only two words redacted, the conspiracy theorists will say the secret is in those two words. Doug, is it possible that we still don't know something, that there is some mystery that could be unearthed? Yes, there is. There's still most people feel some pieces missing. Uh, is it the Chicago mob? Uh, was there a CIA involvement um, that's been hidden? Why was Oswald? What was he doing in Mexico City? These things continue every year. There's some good new research that comes out, but alas, we're still left with the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald is is seen as the murder of John F. Kennedy, and the rest is is circumstantial, but the fact that Jack Ruby was then killed after Oswald and the fact that the Warren Commission um, didn't do a complete and full job at the time is going to, as John Berman rightfully said, there's never going to be enough. We're never going to be able to satisfy uh, all people Mm -hmm. that want a definitive answer about this. But this may be a couple documents here might might move the narrative forward in a small way, and uh, that might be enough for another book. Okay, Doug Brinkley, uh, John Berman, John Miller, thank you all. Great to have you. And thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.